0: The following is a podcast from St. George's Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia. We invite you to support the ministries of St. George's Church through a one-time or reoccurring donation. To give, visit our webpage, www.stgeorgeschurch.org. The word saint is spelled in full. St. George's is a vibrant and inclusive community that is committed to loving God, serving others, and changing the world. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man went home, down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Generous God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Inspirer. Amen. Amen. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now... What if Christ's redeeming grace is powerful enough to transform even our base competitiveness? I had a high school swim team captain who loved to quote Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome: Two men enter, one man leaves. Two men enter, one man leaves. While I still haven't seen the movie, his chant still stays with me. This captain was the kind of guy who would bring a cinder block to swim practice in order to train by treading water while holding the cinder block above his head. And our swim might meet against our biggest rival, the next town over, Needham. He brought an actual cooked ham to the pool before competition so that he could tread water while holding that ham above his head, loudly and unabashedly saying to our Needham rivals, need ham, need ham. (laughs) The guy himself was, needless to say, an intimidatingly huge and distinctly unkosher ham. Like Alex Morgan sipping a cup of tea after scoring her goal against the English team, pinky up, this was the kind of competitor who sought to psych out and overwhelm the opposition. The writer of 2 Timothy gives us three icons for sublimating our competitive human impulses into healthy, adulting, and a lively faith according to the way of Christ. He wrote, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, keeping the faith could be approached as a goaltender seeks to keep the goal, protect the goal, or the way in which a soldier might protect the keep or the innermost tower of some of the earliest English forts. Regardless of the competitive image that fits you in this moment, we are invited to imitate and follow Christ in striving for our own crown of righteousness. We're invited to draw on our competitiveness as a source of spiritual strength, avoiding both the temptation towards re- Resignation, as well as the temptation towards vain spiritual self satisfaction. Returning to Christ's parable, we can see how the mindset of each spiritual practitioner impacts their performance. While the Pharisee might initially seem to bear some similarity to my high school swim captain, a man strong enough to tread water with a spiritual cinder block above his head, if we read the Pharisee's words, More closely, I wonder if we can also perhaps hear him looking over his shoulder in a way as he engages his race of faith. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His approach to God is to focus on being better than the competition, Maybe he's even trying to remind God of how good he is in prayer, as if God needed reminding. While it might be impressive for him to be fasting twice a week and tithing a tenth of his income, I also imagine him experiencing some fear that his deeds won't be enough on some level and then comparing himself favorably to others in an attempt to reassure himself. The problem is that this Self-satisfied prayer means he actually isn't giving his attention to improving his own spiritual life. I confess I've had coaches and teammates alike who have unfortunately had to remind me in high school that if I'm looking over my shoulder in a race, it means I'm actually not racing my best. Would I have raced harder if a competitor had been right behind me, breathing bound my neck? Would I have raced harder if my competitor had been several lengths back? Comparisons in the midst of the race only took my focus off my own efforts and the things I could do to improve. It's challenging that the text tells us that the tax collector was the one who went home justified rather than the other. The verb for justified in the Greek is dedikaimenos, related to dikaiosumne, Meaning to be justified, vindicated, made righteous, or set free from condemnation. This is the variant of the same verb Jesus used when he said, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. It's the same verb famously used in Romans when we're reminded in chapter three, We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The truth in Christ is that grace wins. And the truth in Christ is also that grace is costly. A friend reminded me recently of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who wrote powerfully on the truth of costly grace. In contrast with the cheap grace he saw being peddled by many nominal Christians in Churches, at least, in Germany that were idolatrously and unthinkingly supportive of the fascism and anti-Semitism that took hold in their country. Cheap grace was what allowed countless cells to be misled, led astray into the horrors of Auschwitz and World War II. Bonhoeffer wrote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Christ living and incarnate. He went on, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life, and it is grace because it gives a person their only true life. Allow me to suggest to you that it was costly grace that guided Mary, the mother of God, and Mary Magdalene as they gave birth to the Jesus movement, figuratively, if not literally. Allow me to suggest to you that it was costly grace that inspired the women who hosted the underground church in their homes during the centuries prior to Christianity's acceptance in the Roman state, risking their social status as well as their lives for the gospel. Allow me to suggest to you that it was costly grace that has always guided the best nurses, medical workers, firefighters, police officers, soldiers, not to mention parents and caregivers, as they have journeyed into danger and difficulty for the sake of others. They are among the spiritual leaders who have Exercise their leadership on the margins in unnoticed ways at times, and yet inspired by the same costly grace that Christ, Christ's family, and the disciples have embodied across history. Perhaps there's an upside to the fact that nurture, emotional labor, and spiritual mentorship are so often underappreciated, especially when the world so often focuses on competition, hierarchy, and public shows of strength. This underappreciation can actually help us operate even more effectively as camouflaged Christians, dispensing grace, peace, care, and justice wherever we go. In Hebrew, righteousness is described with the word tzadik, or sadakah, which can also include giving to those in need as acts of both mercy and righteousness. Thus, sadakah could also describe the good deeds undertaken in our food pantry and host dinners in our support for the crop walk, in voice and many other ministries. These are fruits of our justification by faith, and our stewardship campaign is an invitation to think and pray about how we can even more abundantly embody this costly grace, and how we use our time, our talent, and our treasure. In our parable, I imagine the tax collector made different choices when he went forth from the temple that day. But we aren't told exactly what those are. We also aren't told that the Pharisee found his spiritual life transformed at a later date. What would costly grace have looked like in both of their lives going forward? Regardless of our answer, we can learn from their efforts, their strengths, their weaknesses, their moments of cheap grace, and their opportunities to receive the grace that is costly. The grace that is lived in humility and faith, lived like the death and resurrection of Christ's body, received like the communion bread that is broken and yet also whole. This is the story of costly grace living in us if we would only open our hands and our hearts to receive it. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Amen. Amen.